This morning we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 28, the whole chapter. Isaiah 28, the whole chapter. I'll read this for us, and then we'll ask for the Lord to help us understand His Word. And let me remind you that this is God's good and kind and gracious Word this morning. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He cast down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priests and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those who are taken from the breast... For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear, and the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, Line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and ensnared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, you who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and water will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass through, by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as, a, as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused. To do his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. 
Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for, for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat in rows, and barley in its proper place, and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. Also, This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding it. Pray with me, please. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this word that you have delivered to Isaiah so many years ago and and now have given to us. We pray, Father, that we would see Jesus Christ and salvation through him more clearly, that we would hear your offer and your call of rest and not reject it today. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, in the 19th century, he wrote a short short. Uh, story called The Prophet. Uh, I'm sorry, it was called The Madman. It was about a prophet called The Madman. And his intention in writing this story was to rouse his intellectual peers to understand the profound consequences of their enlightenment ideals. This is the story. The prophet, early one shining morning, he lights a, la- a lantern. Now, it's the morning. It's, it's light out already, and he lights a lantern. And he runs into a populated square shouting, I seek God, I seek God. And the onlookers in the square, who were mostly atheists, they laughed and they jeered at the prophet. And they joked that God must have hidden himself or must still be asleep in order to explain why he couldn't be found. And then in lucid clarity, the prophet looks at the scoffers and he says, you want to know where God has gone? I will tell you. We have killed him, you and I. We are his murderers. And then the prophet goes on for a few more minutes attempting to explain to these men the horror of their ideas and all the things that they have done since they have killed God. But the crowd stares at him They don't know what to say or how to respond. And the prophet concludes that the people are not ready to hear the message. And he goes away silently. Now, it's hard to know exactly what Nietzsche meant by this, uh, but it's more than likely. uh, He saw himself as that madman, as that prophet. He saw himself as one that was... Yeah, explaining things and consequences that people weren't quite ready to hear. And indeed, 60 to 70 years after Nietzsche, after the First and Second World Wars, uh, they began to understand that the Enlightenment ideals that they thought were so enlightened actually caused the collapse of Western civilization. And we're still dealing with that today. Now, my point in sharing that story is throughout history... There's always been prophets who have been rejected and misunderstood 
and, and just, sh- you know, put away because people aren't ready to hear or don't want to hear their message. And that's exactly what we see in this passage today. The people of God in Isaiah's day hear his message and they don't know how to respond. So today we're beginning the fourth cycle of the book of Isaiah. Remember, there are seven cycles. This is the beginning of the fourth. This cycle runs from chapters 28 to 35. And once again, we're coming to this theme of destruction in Israel and Jerusalem because of their rejection of Yahweh. We finished up the last cycle with the glory of Yahweh's final solution to the problem of sin in the world, that there would be a day of judgment for the wicked and a day of celebration for the remnant of his people, and that celebration would last forever. Well, now we circle back around to the theme of judgment. And essentially what he says in this chapter is that there are two ways to live. One way is the way of pride, and the other way is the way of simple humility. One way is the way of trusting in self, and the other way is the way of trusting in the Lord. So I've broken up this chapter in in three ways, in three sections for us to more easily understand what's going on. So the first section is pride and ignorance in chapter, uh, I'm sorry, in verses 1 through 13. The second is pride and insecurity, and you see that in 14 through 22. And then the third is humility and security in 23 through 29. So let's begin by looking at the first part, uh, pride and ignorance in verses 1 through 13. Have you ever been looking at a picture thinking that it's one thing when someone comes up and they see something completely different? Now there's lots of examples of what are called ambiguous pictures that from one perspective they look like one thing, but from another they look like something else entirely. If we were to take or if we were to be given a historical snapshot of Judah and Israel, we likely would say that these two kingdoms were healthy and stable. In fact, from one perspective, they are model countries and they should be emulated by other countries. But then Isaiah comes along and he says, you need to look at these these kingdoms from God's perspective And you'll see that they are actually miserable failures. And so in verses 1 through 4, he begins to explain uh, what Ephraim is like. And what are they like? Well, he says twice here, Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty. They are a proud people. They're proud of a lot of things. They're proud of their riches. They're proud of their wealth. They're proud of their abundance of wine. And they're proud of their beauty. In various ways, through these four verses, you see their pride come out. But in their pride, they can't see that they are actually very easily destroyed. You see, Ephraim has these very rich valleys, these fertile valleys that produce lots of grapes, lots of olives, lots of all the things that you want. In the Middle East. And God says, I can wipe those valleys out with one hailstorm. That's how quickly your rich valleys can be taken away. And then he says, their beauty can be gone and will actually 
be like a flower that blooms quickly and then fades away very quickly. And he says that they are going to be plucked from the land just as easily as a first ripe fig is plucked off of a fig tree and eaten and swallowed by the one that picked it. Now you need to remember that Ephraim or Israel, the northern kingdom, they were the more liberal, the more cosmopolitan cousins to the north of Judah. In many ways, they were the intellectual elites of Israel. But their pride was their downfall. So you see there in verses 1 through 4, Ephraim. Look then at verses 7 through 13. Isaiah turns his attention to Jerusalem and the Judeans. Now remember that Jerusalem and the Judeans were the neighbors to, or the cousins to the south. They were the more religiously conservative of God's people. And they were still maintaining at least a superficial adherence to the religion of Yahweh. But what does Isaiah see in them? Well, in verse 7, you see they also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. Their priests and their prophets reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine and they stagger with strong drinks. They reel in vision. What Isaiah sees is that Jerusalem and Judea and those that are at least have that superficial adherence to Yahweh are just as proud and arrogant as Ephraim. They pride themselves on their theological knowledge. But at the end of the day, in their pride, they're just as futile and just as ignorant as their liberal cousins. And you see the graphic description, uh, description of their drunkenness in verse 8. What do you see there? For the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. What Isaiah is probably describing are the tables that are in the temple that are meant for worship. And the priests are so drunk that as they go in to perform their duties as the priest, they vomit all over the tables that are there to hold the showbread for the worship of Yahweh. That's how depraved and ignorant God's people are. Then in verses 9 and 10, you see something interesting that the priest and the rulers of Jerusalem are receiving Isaiah and they're receiving his message, but they mock his message. In verse 10 or verse 9, what you see is they ask the question, who is this message meant for, Isaiah? And they say, you might as well give it to toddlers or to children that have not been weaned yet. Why? Because in verse 10, It's precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. In English, it's hard for us to kind of grasp what he's saying, but essentially, this is what he's saying. They're saying, Isaiah, you're basically going... It's baby talk. It's baby talk. It doesn't make any sense. And they're saying, your message is so simple, you might as well be delivering it to a baby. So they're mocking Isaiah, they're mocking his message. And then at verse 12, what do you see? That the Lord has given them a very simple message. What is the message? He tells them what is rest. This is rest, he says. Give rest to the weary. Isaiah was given a message of rest to the people. 
And he says, this is repose. This is where you can rest yourself. But sadly, verse 12, they would not hear it. The leaders of the people didn't want a simple message. They wanted to show their own brilliance. And in doing so, they reject Yahweh. They reject his messenger. They reject his word. So then Yahweh goes on and he says, oh, you're going to learn the message. You're going to get it, but I'm not going to send you a prophet. I'm going to send an invading foreign army. And through them, you're going to learn. Essentially, he says, you laughed before at my prophet repeating exactly what they told to Isaiah. This is precept upon precept upon precept and line upon line. Here a little, there a little. You're going to learn the lesson. You laughed You refused to understand, but you'll understand later in tears. And you see that at the end of verse 13. For those who do accept this message, this simple message of the gospel, there is a glorious outcome. And you see this in in verses 5 and 6. When all is being destroyed around the remnant of God's people, the Lord is a crown of glory. And that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of His people. When God's true people lose their wealth, lose their land, their beauty, what do they do? They rejoice because they have the Lord. And when all of that stuff is taken away from God's people, they rejoice because they have more of the Lord, not less, And he becomes a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. So once again, two ways emerge here. The way of pride and trusting in self. And what does that lead to? That leads to ignorance. Ephraim was ignorant that they were so easily destroyed. And Judah was ignorant, thinking that they needed a better theological message, not the simple message of the grace of God. Pride is dangerous because it blinds you to the reality of what you're really like. That's the first way. Trusting in self, pride in self. Or the way of humility and trusting in the Lord, which opens you to real rest. There's a moment-by-moment opportunity to see where your real rest is. How do you respond when things go wrong? Do you become like Chicken Little saying the sky is falling? Or are you confident because the Lord of hosts is your glory and not whatever it is that you've lost? So that's the first way, pride and ignorance. Secondly, you see in verses 14 through 22, pride and insecurity. So the leaders in Jerusalem, they scoff at Isaiah, they scoff at his message, and his message is one of doom and gloom. But why are they scoffing? It's interesting They're scoffing because they think they have found security outside of the Lord. Look at verse 15. What we're told here and what Isaiah says is they have made a covenant with death. And Isaiah is really, really, really giving it to them here. What he's saying is, uh, you're going to see this a little bit more uh, in verses 30 and 31. Because what he's saying is, you have made a covenant with death. But what, what the people have said to Isaiah is, Okay, we know that the Assyrians are coming. We're not worried because we have made a covenant with Egypt. Basically, what they're saying is 
we're not worried about about Isaiah, I mean about Assyria because we have Egypt. But notice what Isaiah does. He says he replaces Egypt with death because that's literally what they've done. Isaiah points out to them that they have chosen death instead of life. They have chosen the grave instead of joy. They've chosen lies and falsehood instead of truth. Now, from a worldly perspective, this covenant with Egypt just makes good political sense. Why wouldn't you want to be allies with one of the most powerful nations in the world, especially when another of the most powerful nations, Assyria, is at your doorstep? But look at the picture from God's perspective. He says it's actually a covenant with death. God doesn't use the word covenant lightly. We tend to think of it in merely secular terms as a contract, but it's so much more than that. In the Bible, a covenant is made for the sake of spiritual security. Covenants are literally blood-cutting ceremonies where you shed your blood as a sign that you are willing to give your life as a condition of loyalty. You don't give more, get more spiritually serious than that. And here God has, God's chosen people have given their lives in a covenant ceremony to the Egyptians. The very ones that God had freed them from years and years before. And told, told them, don't go back to Egypt. What are they doing? They're going back to Egypt. They're running to Egypt for help. But what does God say? He says it's not the great and powerful Egypt that will help his people. You know, God didn't choose Egypt as his nation or his saviors. He didn't choose Assyria either or the Greeks or the Romans. And he didn't choose the United States to be his chosen nation. Now that might be shocking to you, but what might be, what might be more shocking to you is that he didn't even choose Israel to be the final security for his people. And you see that in this passage. Because no one is saved by being an Israelite or being part of national Israel. No, the only one that can help, the only real security for God's people is what he calls here the cornerstone. It's an illustration or a picture of one big level stone that builders would use to set the foundation of a building. And they would use it to make sure everything else was level and straight and secure. Years before, the psalmist in Psalm 118 said, The stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. The leaders in Jerusalem have said, We have our cornerstone, we have our help, and it's Egypt. And that building is going to crumble. But Yahweh says... I have my cornerstone, and you have rejected it. He says it's a precious cornerstone. It's a sure cornerstone. And because they have rejected the only Savior of his people, then they're going to be subject to the Lord's whip. And you see that in verse 21. The whip will pass through the land. But God says whoever believes in the cornerstone... You see that at the end of verse 17. Whoever believes, and the understanding is that he's talking about whoever believes in the cornerstone will not be in haste or will not be subject to the judgment. 
And that's the real key to security. Faith in Yahweh is the only security that you need. But we run to all sorts of things in our pride. How often when hardship threatens us do we run to our man-made devices instead of to Yahweh? And our pride leads to insecurity and fear. And what Yahweh says is the opposite of pride is faith in Him, trusting in Him. And that leads to security. And then the last thing here you see in verses 23 through 29, humility and security. Isaiah kind of switches his theme and he starts talking about something completely different. He says, essentially, there's a simple way to live. The way of pride is so stinking complicated. Because if you're proud of yourself, you actually have to live up to what you think of yourself. You actually have to deliver on your promises of greatness. And Isaiah says, I want you to take two simple lessons from the farmer and from the harvester. In verses 23 through 26, he says, look at the simple farmer. The farmer doesn't need any special train to know how to do what he does. And you need to remember that this is 2,600 years ago before the science of farming was an academic field of study. What does the farmer do? He plows a bit. He plants a bit. And he does what the Lord has instructed him to do according to his own observations. Isaiah is saying that the message of faith is actually quite simple. And you don't have to make it harder than it is. And then in verses 27 through 29, he says, Now, look at the harvester. He uses the right tool for the job of harvesting. He doesn't use a threshing sledge on dill or cartwheel on cumin. I don't know really what that means. He doesn't thresh out grain forever when he threshes it. The harvester is smart in how he approaches his task. He says this is the simple way to live. Well, what's the task before the leaders in Jerusalem? The task is to face the onslaught of the Assyrian forces. And how should Jerusalem face this threat? How should they face this difficult task before them? Well, Isaiah says you need to do what the Lord has taught you. Not what your pride has taught you. They need to use the tools that the Lord has given them, not their own ingenuity. The right tool for the job in Jerusalem is faith in Yahweh. Not Egypt, not their own strength or resources or anything else. It is really just that simple. So what about you? How do you face hardship and trials in this life? Do you rush to try to figure out what to do according to your own strength? Or do you look at your circumstances and say, I'm just a simple person. I can't figure this out. I can't even deal with the stress of this. I need help. Lord, help me. Now, pride is the most dangerous of all sins because it blinds you and it makes you ignorant. It blinds you to itself and it makes you ignorant. And you might be listening today and you might think, this sounds like baby talk. That this isn't for you, but it absolutely is for you. And it's for me too. We need to, be, we need to pray that we would not be blinded by our arrogance, but wake up to the reality of our sin, fall on our knees, and receive the rest that God gives through His Son, Jesus Christ. In Acts 
the first sermon that was preached by the apostles, by Peter, after Pentecost. He points to Psalm 118 and he says, The cornerstone that the builders have rejected has been made, or the stone the builders have rejected has been made the cornerstone. And he says, The cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Fall on him for your help. Put your faith in him. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us to fall on Jesus Christ, to rest on him, to not rest in our pride or anything else in this world. Help us to have faith in you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.